0: This message first aired on the radio on January 23rd, 2004. Well, we're in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to spend a little time looking at the subject of the body today, and then we'll move along to some of the other issues that the Apostle faced. But we've just come off the 9th, 10th, and 11th verses, where we read, "'Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived,' Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now we looked at those three verses and we discussed the difference between inheriting the kingdom of God and possessing eternal life and we saw that those were different subjects not certainly not unrelated but different subjects in Scripture that had to do one with being Christian that is to have eternal life to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the other having to do with how we conduct ourselves in the Christian life and be not deceived because you will not inherit the kingdom of God there'll be no inheritance in the kingdom of God In that day, in the day of Jesus Christ, when we'll be judged according to our works and the way that we conducted our Christian life, where the Christian life itself of each and every believer will be evaluated and judged by our Lord Jesus Christ, at that time it will be determined whether we will inherit the kingdom of God or not. But in the meantime, we are in the kingdom of God and we ought to conduct ourselves accordingly. And so, the general principle begins to be laid down by the Apostle for the conduct of the Christian life with respect to the body. And he says this, verse 12, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient or profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now when we look at this, we see a very similar principle reiterated in fact we see the same principle restated as we saw in the book of romans so we're just going to take a minute and go back to the book of romans and we'll look at romans chapter 14 and verse 14 and the apostle wrote there i know and am persuaded by the lord jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean to him It is unclean. And there we see that, in fact, in and of itself, in the nature of things, there is nothing unclean out there. There are no evil substances in the world. There are evil practices that arise out of the heart of man. And, of course, the problem of sin today, in every day, has never been the problem of the things of the world. It has always been the problem of the lust of the heart of man. Out of the hearts of man proceed evils. The evil doesn't proceed from the outside in, but proceeds from the inside out. So the apostle said, as far as legal principles go, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not profitable. That is to say, all things are not profitable for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now here's the principle that he points out. He said, well, all things are lawful, but all things are not necessarily profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'm going to maintain my Christian liberty. I'm going to maintain my freedom, and I'm not going to build a dependency on anything that is in the world. Now, that is an entirely different principle than a list of clean and unclean things. And, of course, he lays out that there's nothing unclean of itself because he understands that God once gave a list of clean and unclean things of which the Jews, his nation Israel, were allowed to either partake of or not partake of in the case of clean and not clean. But here he says there's a different principle with the new nature that I have and with this marvelous gift of God that we've received there's a new principle that is to operate and the principle is what is profitable what is profitable not what's lawful but what's profitable and you want the profitability test he says it this way all things are lawful for me but I am not going to be brought under the power of anything and so now he says well if something has a hold on me if I have noticed in my life, a particular lust of the flesh, and it has a hold on me, whether it's an addiction to a certain kind of food or an amount of food, or whether it's an addiction to drink, or whether it's an addiction to other habits that take away from the profitability of my life. In our age, it could certainly be television or sports or some other avocation that you have that is now taking control of your life. Some people are controlled by shopping. Uh, Some people are controlled by overspending in other ways. All kinds of addictive and strange addictive behaviors arise out of that old nature, which is fallen. And the principle that we're to exercise is, if I'm being brought under the power of something, I need to eliminate it or reduce its hold in my life. And that's an individual decision. Now he says in verse 13, Food is for the belly, and the belly for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Or in other words, God's going to destroy both. We're not going to have these same digestive systems or the same foods in the coming age. All things are going away in that realm, and so neither of those are what last, and so therefore neither of those are what's most profitable. And so we ought not run our lives around what we're going to eat or what we're going to put on or what we're going to do to distract ourselves. Now in that transitionary statement where he lays down that principle he now takes up in more detail the issue of fornication and of course this is the issue that was running rampantly unjudged in the Corinthian church and it's the issue today brother and sister and friend of mine uh... it is the issue today that runs rampant in the churches of God and it runs rampantly unjudged the issue of fornication and i'm going to take my time a little bit with this next passage beginning with the middle of the thirteenth verse because it is so often taken out of context it's often taken into a context where it has to do with the way we eat or the way we exercise or don't eat or don't exercise And it's not about that at all. It is about our moral character. And here it is. The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And God has raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by his own power. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot, God forbid." Now, when he talks about the body, he's talking about the body here being a member of Christ, and he's also going to be talking about your body as the temple of the Holy Ghost. But the context of this passage is not to apply to all things. This does not say That you should be a picture of physical fitness. This does not say that you should have facial surgery and other surgeries to make your body look the best for the Holy Spirit. And it certainly is not a prescription for a don't eat this and a don't drink that and a do eat this and a do eat that. This is not a prescription for that. The topic here is fornication. And that's what we ought to think about. We ought to think about the moral evils to which we attach our body, especially that moral evil of fornication. And and we'll look in here and we'll see that that is it. It says the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. Verse 13 and verse 15 now. Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? That is to say, Christ is the head, and your body is a member of Christ's body on earth, his sometimes called mystical body, or secret body, I think that might be a way to put it, or the body in mystery form. But here, you're not to take the members of Christ. It says, shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot, God forbid. Now, this was not the kind of fornication that was referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, where even the Gentiles wouldn't practice, where a man had his father's wife. This is a more common form of fornication that apparently was problematic, at least in the city of Corinth that certainly was problematic, and apparently was problematic in the Corinthian church. And he said, Shall I take the members of Christ, who you are, and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. This had to do with the rampant fornication that took place in the city of Corinth, and apparently in the precincts of the Corinthian church. Now, the temple harlots in Corinth were available. That was a licensed, registered kind of uh, harlotry, like we have in the state of Nevada, for example. And here, these temple prostitutes were made available to those who visited the temple on a Friday night. They had their heads shaven, so you could tell who they were. And as long as you participated in the temple rite, you had access to these women for a fee and these were the harlots of that day. Now the only difference in that day and our day is that harlots aren't so systematically available except as I said in in parts of the state of Nevada, but we have many harlots available today. There are very many women for hire, there are even male harlots for hire, there are boys for hire, money acquires their service, and here it says, shed you, being a member, your body, being a member of the body of Christ, and join it to a harlot? And then he says, Perish the thought, God forbid. Those of you who were with us during our study of Romans realize that this is a common phrase used in that epistle, God forbid, to kill thoughts of the mind that are so disturbing. Now it says, verse 16, What? Do you not know that he that is joined to a harlot is one body, For two, says he, shall be one flesh. Now here we see the scripture teaching that the joining of one body to another in sexual relations is an aspect of the one flesh of marriage. In fact, without the joining of two being one flesh, there can be no marriage. And here it says that uh, this is effectively uh, becoming one flesh with a harlot when you engage in sexual relations therewith but he that is joined unto the lord is one spirit that is one spirit with the lord now i have that's a it gives me an interesting note i've been to many christian weddings and it used to be some years back and maybe it still is today that they had a popular song that they would play that talked about the union of the spirits of the two being married well Let me assure you, my friends, that you and your wife are not united as one spirit. We are united to the Lord in one spirit, every Christian. You are united to your wife or to your husband in one flesh, not one spirit. The two shall be one flesh. The two do not become one spirit. But here it says, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. And so why would you take one who is spiritually joined to the Lord and join the body which the spirit of man is to control, and join that body to the body of a harlot. God forbid. Now we have this remarkable scripture. We have this remarkable verse of scripture. We have First Corinthians six eighteen. Flee fornication. Every other sin that a man does is outside his body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. And I would that people would pay more attention to that verse. Every other sin has a different aspect to it as pertains to the body. But fornication is a sin against one's own body. That means fornication is the most health-harming thing you can do. Fornication is the number one danger to the body. Now let the peace and safety crowd who are trying to put upon us all manner of wrong principle, let them look at this, the most unhealthy thing there is to do in life is to commit fornication, to have sexual relations outside of marriage. It is the most unhealthy thing. I remember I was invited once, I don't think I'll be invited again, but I was invited once by the local school district to sit on a committee to advise them on how to teach health education. And my principle was that the most unhealthy thing that a child could do or that anyone could do is fornication in its various forms, and that we ought to teach a couple of things for in health classes and a couple things only. One, avoid fornication, and two, let's teach them principles of public health. Let's teach them to wash their hands and to keep fresh water systems fresh and foul water systems foul, but let's teach them to avoid fornication because it's more unhealthy than not brushing your teeth, it's more unhealthy than not washing your hair, it's more unhealthy even than not washing your hands, which is a pretty unhealthy thing. Every other sin is committed outside the body. He that commits fornication Sins against his own body, and that is the scripture, first corinthians six verse eighteen verse nineteen. What do you not know your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost? Well, there's that passage, and we'll take that up in just a minute after this brief announcement. Now, I hear people misquoting this scripture or quoting it out of context, and remember that a text of scripture outside of its context is a pretext, and that means it's a pretext for teaching something that the Bible doesn't really teach. And here is verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, an oft misquoted or taken out of context verse of Scripture, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Now this means that your body encloses or carries around the Holy Spirit, the new nature, this is not the person of the Holy Spirit, but this is the new nature of the believer. And don't you know that your body is the body of this humiliation, though it is passing away and though it is, it is that corruptible aspect that we have. Don't you know that it is carrying about inside a new nature that has been given to you by God through the new birth? And of course, this is a rhetorical question. It's a twofold question. Don't you know that? And that you are not your own and Of course, you should answer to that question. Proper knowledge of the scripture answers that question. Yes, I know that I have a new nature and that it's inside my body, and I also know that I'm not my own, that I have been bought with a price, as verse twenty says of first Corinthians six, You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, the glorification of God here is to keep yourself from fornication. That doesn't mean I think you should mistreat your body. Uh, Certainly, there are other sins. We do all sins in our body. But the particular context here is fornication. And when he's talking about the temple of the Holy Ghost... He's saying, just imagine and think about what a disgrace to God it is to commit fornication, to misrepresent who you're joined to, to actually join to a harlot, when in fact spiritually you're joined to the Lord, when you are a member of the body of Christ, and your member is supposed to be presented, we present our bodies and our members as weapons for the spiritual war in favor of of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what is it like when we present our bodies as literally both to destroy them and to oppose the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's the great contradiction. That's the great sin of fornication. And the Bible goes on a bit about the sin of fornication for the reason that it is that sin that is one against the body and two so common especially among the Gentiles. Fornication is of most serious sin and when you focus your defensive efforts for your children, focus on keeping them from fornication, keeping them from sexual relations outside of marriage. The whole agenda of trying to keep them from sin of every kind can be overwhelming, but if you will just defend your young children from fornication, you'll have such a happy success in raising them. Now, here it says we should think about this. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. It's the precious price of the blood of Jesus Christ. He shed his own blood on the cross and paid for us. When we say we are redeemed, that means we are purchased. We have been purchased back redeemed means to be bought back. Well, what were we bought back from? We were bought back from the auction of slavehood to sin. We were on the open slave market that sin had purchased, and now we've been bought back. We have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and so here is the educated mind of Christ. And the Bible is intended to impart to us the mind of Christ. And we have a new nature that is able to have the mind of Christ. And so the Bible educates our mind. It doesn't give us a series of do's and don'ts so much as to give us a framework or a form wherein we can have sound words placed inside that form and organized to empower that new nature to live a life pleasing to God. And here, as the scriptures are outlined to us, we see that fornication looms very large, and that it is a special category of sin against the body, and so it is especially one to take note as to avoid. And the summary is, know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, although this is not the Holy Ghost, but a temple of Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. This referencing the new nature, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. So, uh, one way of looking at this principle of avoiding fornication, which is joining one's self to a harlot, is that you're not your own, you're not even entitled to make that decision. You've been joined to the Lord, you've been bought with a price, and the Lord is to make the decisions on where you're body joins and how your members are presented in the spiritual war. Well, as we come through that understanding, we come into, and it's a very good transition, we come into the transitionary scriptures that open up the answers to the questions that the Corinthians asked the Apostle Paul. And these are sanctified questions. We don't have exactly what the questions are that they asked the Apostle, but because we have his answers we can certainly infer what the questions were. But apparently there's been correspondence we saw earlier in the epistle that Paul said that uh, he had uh, written to them and apparently they also wrote to him because we have a reference in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Now concerning the things where you wrote unto me it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So apparently they had a question about man and woman relationships that they asked him and they said well now should a man touch a woman or how should a man conduct himself with a woman insofar as there is this big problem of fornication going on in this city should we just completely avoid women should men and women just avoid each other should we just forget the whole idea of marriage it just looks like so much problems and of course they did have a complex set of problems before them really just as we are beginning to have in our own society in America and that other societies certainly have had where Christ has not been so thoroughly preached in the past. So he he writes, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And this word touch uh, it literally means touch but it also means to inflame and it means both of those things and it's used here by the Holy Ghost. Remember these are words which the Holy Ghost teaches. And this word touch, which can also mean to light up or kindle, is used that a man should not touch a woman. And we learn a little something about men and women from this passage. And here's what we learn. We learn that man is the match and a woman is the tinderbox. Now man's a match, and so he has the ability to start a fire but a woman is a tinderbox typically she will not start a fire as much as get lit up and be the object of the fire now this is normally just the way that it is now there might be an exception to that maybe you have occasionally men who are tinderboxes and women who are lighting the matches but generally here it is the man who lights up the match and fires up the woman and a man burning alone is not nearly as much of a problem as a man who lights a woman up and now you have a conflagration and that's the thought here it's good for a man not to touch a woman that is don't get her all fired up and let me tell you now fathers that's what these boys do to your daughters they fire them up they fire them up and it is your responsibility father It is your responsibility brother to overlook And to oversee and to keep your daughter and don't think that your wife can do that and don't think that her friends can do that and don't think that she can keep herself and now I speak also as a grandfather to grandfathers you have the role of father in your granddaughter's life and you need to get in there and pitch and help keep that girl we need to keep our young women from these young men who are busy lighting matches all the time. In fact, who are flame throwers themselves. And all you have to do is think about your own self. You don't have to go hate some young fella. You just think about your own self and the kind of fellow you were and are. And you'll understand why the scripture says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, that is not to kindle her. And how do men kindle women? Well, they kindle the women by touching them. That's the physical contact Uh, with the young girls, or with the women, doesn't have to be so young, physical contact with the woman is what does kindle her, and what gets her defenses lowered, and her passions rising, and for that reason, the scripture gives us very clear direction here, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, and all forms of what you think may be innocent physical contact are just fire hazards. And here the scripture commends to avoid these fire hazards. When a man touches a woman, you begin to have those fire hazards. You say, well, what's the matter with just holding hands? Well, you read the scripture here, and you tell me what it is that's the matter with holding hands or putting arms around one another, dancing together, which I think should be limited to married people at the very least. Here we well at the most eat also, but here you see... It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Verse 2, Nevertheless, now the King James text says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication. But actually it just reads, Nevertheless, fornication. And that is a present fact, friends. Fornication is a present fact. It is a clear and present danger. And it is the case that fornication is something that God understands And he knows about it. He never approves of it. But to avoid fornication, he, in part, gave us marriage. Marriage is for the continuation of the race. It is for the raising of orderly homes. And it is for the avoidance of fornication also. It is also for that. It is the defense. It is the answer to fornication. And so it says, nevertheless, fornication, verse 2, let every man have his own wife, And let every woman have her own husband. And now we see the general principle of 1 Corinthians 7, which is to let each one have a husband, and let each one have a wife. It is the case, friends, that every man is able to have a wife, and that every woman is able to have a husband. Well, not two, not three, not seven, but one and every man and every woman are to be allowed to have their own wife or their own husband not the wife of somebody else not the husband of somebody else but their own and that will solve the problem of fornication you want to know what the answer it is it isn't some kind of contraceptive it isn't some kind of physical contraption that makes people unavailable it certainly isn't some kind of sterilization program that the government would sponsor or that people would press into service. The answer to the problem of fornication in the society is marriage. And here the Corinthians were up against an enormous social problem to try to bring it to pass in the Christian church the principle of monogamy because it was not extant in the culture. Polygamy was certainly available in the culture and within polygamy rampant fornication at the temple Rampant fornication inside the religion of the world was the order of the day. Now we almost have that today in America. We don't have that. We don't have legalized polygamy in America. We don't have legalized prostitution in America to the extent that it was in Corinth, although we're getting close. But we do have a huge societal problem of fornication And the answer to the problem of fornication is orderly Christian marriage. And the church of God needs to be the facility, it needs to be the place where men and women, young and old, can conveniently and happily meet one another and become married and have good examples of normal Christian marriage. What is a good example of a normal marriage? Well, it's verse 3 and 4. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise the wife unto the husband. Now you want to have a good marriage, it starts out with this, rendering due benevolence. You're not to withhold yourself in marriage. It is as wrong to withhold oneself in marriage as it is to give oneself outside of marriage. So again, as I had said earlier, I was asked to advise A health education committee and they wanted to talk about sex education and they said well we're going to teach the children abstinence and I said well I don't think teaching abstinence is a proper thing we ought to teach chastity and the difference between chastity and abstinence is chastity teaches abstinence outside of marriage but rendering due benevolence inside of marriage So, whereas abstinence merely teaches, no sex for you. Now, the Bible teaches, no sexual relations outside marriage, but you must, in order to be chaste, have them inside marriage. And we'll look at a couple more things here today, and we're going to take this up again tomorrow, as you might well expect, in just a minute after this announcement. Please stay with us. Friends, as we look at the Scriptures, we really have to say, We're an odd bunch. We sinners are certainly a perverse lot. Here we have the problem when we're not married, we have the problem that we want to have sexual relations outside marriage. Then we get married and we have the problem that we don't want to have sexual relations inside marriage. What a bizarre bunch of difficult sinners we are. And isn't it wonderful that God is understanding of us Well, we might be so understanding one with another. But here now, the apostle also had to command that the husband and the wife render one another due benevolence, because apparently in Corinth, they weren't doing that. Maybe the women were getting to a certain age. I knew one culture I've traveled in among some people. I traveled among the Kikuyu people a little bit while I was in Kenya. And the women asked me, uh, they said, you speak in uh, unusual ways about this topic. We're not used to a preacher taking up the topic of the way men and women are supposed to be with each other inside marriage and the women said they wanted to have a session with me in the afternoon by themselves without the men around. Well I didn't know really what to think about it and I won't get ambushed like that again but the men were happy to do it they said they would appreciate if I would talk to their wives out of these scriptures and so I did it and these women now were in their 40s. There were some young women, but the women were in their 40s, 50s, and even 70s and 80s, and had a room full of these women. And they're all Christian women, and they're all very nice women, and didn't have any of them that wanted to preach. I didn't have any of them that wanted to lead the church, which is unusual. And they began to ask me questions about this subject that I had just touched upon in the context of discussing Christian marriages and especially they wanted to talk about what was this I was saying that when a husband wanted to have sexual relations his wife should render him according to his desire and when a woman wanted to have sexual relations a man should render to her according to her desire and that they should look after one another's needs certainly I didn't mean it when people were 40 and 50 years old did I when the women became 40 or 50 I didn't mean it then, did I? And I said, I don't understand uh, what you mean. Of course, I mean it at that time. And the older women began to, the older women that were there, now I'm talking about the ones who were 70 and 80 whose daughters were that age, they began to discuss with me saying, well we teach our women, you're too old, it's not enjoyable anymore, just forget about it. And they had a whole society in this tribe a whole society of women who from their middle forties began to keep themselves away from their men. And I said well you are driving these men to other women. Now it's not right that they do that, they shouldn't, but you're driving them to it. They couldn't understand that. They didn't like the practices that the men would go have younger women typically, almost universally, and I explained to them they were part of the problem. Well, this I assume is not a huge problem in the Christian churches in America, but I was in a religion where it is a huge problem in America before I became a Christian, and I found the those of that religion. It's ostensibly Christian. I'm talking about the Roman religion. I found many, many problems like this, where men and women live as if single, as if single, later in their lives. And the scripture says, do not do this. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 7, defraud you not one another. Now here you're cheating. You're depriving the other party of what is due to them. Defraud ye not one another, except it may be with consent for a time, meaning a short time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again in order that Satan does not tempt you for your incontinence. And of course, here's the problem that we have. We have the problem of incontinency, akrasia, or akrasia. We have the problem of lack of self-control in this area. And God doesn't tell us, just learn self-control. Learn to do without. The Bible does not teach you to do without sexual relations. The Bible teaches you, if you have need, get married and inside marriage you don't have to do without sexual relations in fact you are there for the other party's needs and if the other party has a need you give yourself to that need and you look after one another now here even in the case where he talks about well if you want to withhold yourselves and you do it by consent for a short season he says in verse 6, Look, this I speak by way of permission. You're permitted to do that. You're permitted to agree together to withhold yourself from one another for a short season. I permit you to, but I certainly do not command such things. And it never in the scripture is sexual relations inside marriage uh, limited. The apostle does not limit it. In fact, he says, Now, I'm not commanding you to withhold yourselves for any period of time from one another, but I give you permission that if you agree for a short time to uh, keep relations from one another so that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer, then you may do that. It's permitted, not commanded. Now, he says, verse 7, This would be easier, he says, I would that all men were even as I myself. Now, how was Paul, well, here we find Paul to be, oh, perhaps 50 years old or so, certainly in that range. And how was he? Well, he was one who did not need a wife. Now, I believe that he was one who certainly once had a wife. Whether she died or left him because he became a Christian, I don't know. But he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, two qualifications as a member of the Sanhedrin. One, 30 years old. Two, Married. There were other qualifications, but those are two essential qualifications. So I believe that he at one time was married. Now maybe he's a widower. Uh, Maybe she just left him and he was thereby single. But whatever it was, he found that he was gifted in such a way that he had no need. He said, I would that all men were even as I myself. He did not need a woman. But every man has his proper gift of God one after this manner and another after that I've met men gifted single I've met a few very few but I've met a few I've met women who are gifted single or who when widowed have found themselves conveniently living single and have no need and no desire to marry a man again and being a man I guess I understand that now how men live without women that one I don't understand. Maybe someday I will, but I do not understand it today. But then I'm not so gifted. But here the apostle was gifted, and the men, the single men, that I know have been gifted that way, are thoroughly content. And one of them, when I had discussions years ago with him, and he's an excellent Bible student. In fact, he's what I would call a Bible scholar, and I use that term in a very limited way. Told me he was gifted, single. And I said, how do you know that? And he said to me, well, don't you worry how you know it, because you're not. And I thought that was funny. But anyway, Paul said, I would that all men were as I myself. Of course, if everybody was like him, didn't need to get married, we wouldn't have any children, and there wouldn't be anybody like him. But of course, he knows that's not going to be the case. He uses this as a figure of speech to say, life would be simpler without any sexual needs and indeed it would and let me tell you he's now saying marriage is troublesome and if you can do without it do without it but he knows that very few can do without it he said everyone has this proper gift of God one after this manner another after that I say therefore to the unmarried and widows it is good for them if they abide like I am so it's a good thing if you can go without a mate That's great. That's a wonderful thing. But I'll tell you what, you don't go without a mate. You're not gifted this way if you're constantly pining, wondering why it is you don't have a mate. Uh, That's not the way that Paul was. He didn't pine for a woman. He insisted on his liberty to lead a woman about, a sister wife. We see that elsewhere, and we'll come to that. Uh, He insisted that he had the liberty, but he also insisted that he had no need. And so he didn't put his put a woman through the rigors of the apostolic life. Here he says to the unmarried and to widows, to those that didn't have spouses and widows, it's good for them if they abide like I do. However, if they cannot contain, and friends, most of us cannot contain. He says, if they cannot contain, let them marry. It is better to marry than to burn. And now we come back to that first verse where he said it is good for a man not to touch a woman it's good for a man not to inflame a woman well that man inflames that woman because he himself is burning and he sets her tinderbox on fire and she's a burning and if you cannot contain let them marry for it is better to marry uh, than to burn but let me say now Therefore, marriage is defined here in terms of the trouble it is. It is said to be trouble, and it is trouble. We're going to look at that at a later time. We'll look at that in our next message. Marriage is said to be trouble, and it is trouble. When I sit down with prospective marriage, and of course they're all excited about marriage, and they just think that they found the most outstanding idea God has ever come up with, which is marriage, And maybe it's his best idea, although I think salvation a better idea. Whatever it is, they think that they've not only found the best idea, but the best person on earth, and they're going to have a life of no more problems. And I tell them, listen here, I'm here to tell you that marriage is trouble. I'm not going to rain on your parade. In fact, I'll preside over the parade when you get married. But I want to tell you so that you're clear in the matter. Marriage is trouble, but you're turning in one set of troubles the troubles of sexual needs for another set of trouble, which is a married life, and joining this other person, and don't you think it's a bowl of cherries? It's not, but I agree it's better to marry than to burn. Well, we're going to look here at the problems of marriage, and we're going to look at the problems of the circumstances around marriage. And I want to encourage you to stay tuned to this series as I go through First Corinthians 7. And I want to point out that here at BibleStudy.net, we did a series just on 1 Corinthians 7 where uh, I debated a fellow that taught wrong things, and it's on our archive site at BibleStudy.net. You can find it there, and you'll see that it was a debate against a man who was teaching wrong things, especially regards to this chapter. And you're welcome to go up to that site and listen to the messages there. Stay tuned to the next message tomorrow. We'll be taking up more in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and hopefully we finish it then. Until that time, may God bless you as you study His Word, and may you enjoy His Word, because we sure do here at BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone, and talk to you tomorrow.